0: We're in the Gospel of John, John chapter one, and somebody told me we did John chapter one verse fourteen two weeks ago. I wasn't going to say it was you, but you're sitting there nodding your head. So I didn't. I didn't really. Didn't really think that we did fourteen. I didn't really cover it. We did go into fourteen, but but we uh, uh, didn't really cover it like I'm going to cover it this morning. So. Uh, John chapter 1 verse 14 is what we're going to look at. But I'm going to back up to verse 6 like I like to do to get some context. I'll read to you out of the New American Standard uh, 2020 edition. It says, "A man came, one sent from God, and his name was John. And he came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light." This was the true light that coming into the world enlightens every person. And he was in the world, and the world came into being through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not accept him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and called out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who is coming after me has proved to be my superior because... He existed before me. For his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. God, the only son, who is in the arms of the Father, he has explained him. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts as we look into your word that you would grant us understanding by your Holy Spirit, and that you would fill us with your Spirit that we might receive from you this morning. Help us, Lord, to understand and to parse through this incredibly full and important verse. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. It tells us in verse 14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We looked at that verse last week. So what I'm going to do is, Sean, if you could cue up last week's, and we're just going to play that. No, I'm kidding. Um, I want to look at this really from a little bit of a different angle this morning um, and kind of take this apart a little bit. This this idea of the word became flesh, and, and I did a lot of reading. I did a lot of reading from the early fathers on this. And, and rather than reading you quotes, I'm going to kind of give you a little bit of an overview uh, of, of how they were really were primarily on the same page in understanding what this means when it says the word became flesh. Uh, is that, uh, that, that God's own son, God the son became the son of man. Uh, so that the, the sons of men might become the sons of God. And that was John Chrysostom. Actually, that's a direct quote. And I mean, Even after I told you, I wouldn't do one. But anyway, uh, uh, the idea that, that he became, Jesus became the son of man, or the word became the son of man. The word became flesh. He became the son of man so that we might become the children of God. And, and as I read through the fathers on this, they understood this over and over again that the Word did did, did not just acquire for Himself a human body. He didn't do that. Now, of course, we know in the go- earlier in the the Gospels of Matthew and the Gospel of uh, Luke, particularly, it talks about how the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, and 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 implanted, if you will, uh, God the Son in the womb of Mary. Uh, but it wasn't as if the word just went out and found a body for himself. And this is important to understand. It's also very difficult to understand. I can already tell by some of the looks on your faces, you're already going, okay, where are you going with this? Uh, He took on humanity. He took on a second nature. Those two natures, the nature of Jesus being divine, and the nature of Jesus being human are not commingled. It wasn't that he became a, like a third entity, right? They're not, they're not commingled, they are, but they are a part of the same person. Now, it's already, it's already starting to blow some of your minds, right? Now, Jerome talked about this. And he says, the Bible declares it, I'm paraphrasing him here. He said, the Bible declares it, I have no idea how that happened. The Bible declares it, but does not give us the science behind it, or the metaphysics, that's what it really would be. It does not, he does, the Bible does not give us the metaphysics of how we are to understand the fact that in the person of Jesus Christ, he is 100% God and he is 100% man. The Bible never seeks to prove that point. The Bible being God's word. All scripture is God breathed. 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy tells us. It does not set out to prove scientifically, using the scientific method of inquiry inquiry or any other idea. It does not set out to prove the nature of who Jesus is. Notice I said is, not was. It simply declares it. And, and that's what I, uh, what I like about Jerome, and where he says, I know that the word was made flesh. How it was done, I do not know. Jerome was a pretty smart guy. I bring him up because he was culturally influenced by Hellenism. Greek culture. And one of the main attributes in Greek culture at that time was a concept called dualism. Dualism, D-U-A-L-I-S-M. Which separates matter from non-matter. Physical from spiritual. Divine from human. And it, and it thinks in these contrasts. I think uh, we, we really see dualistic thinking in a lot of people who have not really thought out their faith well. And, and hopefully it's something that we, in some regards, that we, we are able to move beyond. And, and Jerome, so Jerome understood this. The early fathers understood this, and they were bucking the cultural thinking of the day. They understood that the Bible, that John's revelation was declaring something that was totally different than what was understood in secular philosophy of the day. Does that make sense? So here you have this incredible radical departure from the humanistic thinking of that day. And incidentally, a lot of these early fathers were also philosophers. They were well-read. They were well-learned. And they understood that they came across something in the scriptures that cannot be completely understood then, nor do I believe it can be completely understood today. So what are we left with? Are we left with an incomplete belief system? We're left with faith. Remember what I talked about a few weeks ago. This was before I talked about John 1.14 the first time. Okay. But remember what I talked about a few weeks ago was Augustine's saying where he says, I believe in order that I might understand. Now, for me, for my money, I think I'm going to understand. This idea of Jesus being 100% God and 100% man, perhaps when I get to heaven. Maybe not even then. There are certain things that are just too wonderful and too awesome that are beyond our understanding. And again, it goes back to me when I had that conversation with a friend of mine years ago. And I was challenging, he was a pastor, he still is actually, and I was challenging the things of God with him and we were talking about it and he finally said, you know, if we understood everything that there was to understand about God, would he really, truly be worthy of our worship? And that made a lot of sense to me. Because that created for me in my thinking that healthy distance between me and my world and God in his world. And I think, I think too often it is, is that we, 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 we believe that we can attain all the answers in our own world in an understanding about an eternal being who created the heavens and the earth, who is so far beyond our thinking. The prophet Isaiah says that his thoughts are beyond our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. But they understood that this saying here that the word became flesh is a reference to the word became human. Remember at the first uh, verse in this, it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So the word was at the beginning. Remember that word is an imperfect verb. Excuse me. It's an imperfect verb, which means something that is happening Happening in the past. It is happening continuously in the past. Does that sound like a contradiction? It is to our thinking. It is not saying something happened past tense continually in the past or something is happening. It's a reference. This imperfect tense where it says in the beginning was that word was is that imperfect verb. Of a reference and, and um, implying this idea of eternity. That before anything ever existed, Psalm 90, verse 2, God is everlasting. Even before creation was, before the mountains were made, you are everlasting from beyond the vanishing point to beyond the vanishing point. And when we think of God in that way, How in the world can we truly even expect of ourselves or others that we can totally understand him? And if he truly is the God who created the universe, does he not have the capacity to do all things, including being 100% God and 100% man in the same person? It blows my mind. It's beyond my understanding. I don't know how he did it, but he did do it. Isaiah 53 talks about this, and it, it's it's a verse that's often overlooked in Isaiah 53, but it says it says, He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? Who will declare his generation? That was understood by the fathers as who will understand and who will declare how he came into existence. How God enters into our time-space continuum and coming into our world as a human being and yet still retaining all of who he is as God. The only thing he did possibly was to set this idea uh, that his full power, his, his full countenance even, which we talked about last week on the Mount of Transfiguration. He veiled his deity, but he never became less than who he was. He never became less than who he is. It would be impossible for him to do so. Just as when uh, Peter is talking about in Acts two, and I don't want to take the time to turn to it, but it talked about how how Jesus was laid in the grave, but the it was impossible for the grave to hold him. Absolutely impossible. Not only was the resurrection something that was required, but it was something that would happen. Due to the natural nature of how God had established the universe and the natural nature of who he is, he is not one who can be put to death. So, so much for the God is dead people. Which, by the way, I have a different take on that, which I'm not going to sh- share with you this morning. Uh, but one of the God is dead people was actually a son of a Lutheran pastor. Uh, but I think he, he, I think he was actually misunderstood. Their God, in the way that they understood him, was probably dead. But not the God of the universe. I'm talking about Friedrich Nietzsche, by the way. But anyway, um, that was for free. Two natures in one person. I read this over and over and over again from the early fathers who understood something that was completely contrary to their culture. And, I, I, and as I thought about that, it's, it's, it's uh, interesting for me because there, it, it seems that at times we want to refasten our faith to where it's culturally compatible. And I think we have to be careful of that. And I also think that perhaps our culture has more influence over us than we want to think. And because there's more than one culture out there, we say, yeah, we don't want to be like the culture we don't like. But don't you dare touch the culture that I believe in and I hold dear. And we have to be careful of that because the reality is we are kingdom people we are kingdom people first and foremost and, and to be able to by faith understand and declare these things that were counter to the culture of which these men uh, uh, not only grew up in but were educated in um, so we we beheld his glory the glory is the only begotten of the Father. This word, only begotten, and in some of your translations, it'll say only begotten son. And that's not necessarily the best translation. Because the word here in the Greek is the word monogenes. But it doesn't really refer to a child. It's in the masculine, and that's where the word son is translated but it doesn't really say son in the original Greek. it, it is a reference to the only begotten or of the only begotten. It really refers to something that is the only one of its kind. Something that it is is unique. Something that it that it is outside of, of, of the norm. And it's, what it's saying here is that we beheld his glory and uh, uh, the word became flesh, he dwelt among us and we, we saw his glory, glory as the only son from the father. Notice I said son because I read it to you out of the New American Standard and the New American Standard has the word son but it's in italics. What does that mean? You know what that means. It means that it's not in the original text. So it's this idea of the only begotten of the father. So this particular word, and it's the word monogenes, M-O-N-O-G-E-N-E-S, if you want to write it down, it's it's only used of Jesus. It's never used of those who are the children of God. This is a word that is used and used only of Jesus. And and so it's, it's setting him out as the one and the only kind. There was none other kind other than him. Well, of course not, because he is the one who is 100% God and 100% man. And he is that unique one. And, and, and to be able to behold that glory and that glory that is full of grace and truth. Now, this kind of struck me because there, there's, there's a lot of different ways to look at this. And at times, uh, and I've even shared this with you guys, that, that, there, that, that the grace and the truth really are, need to be balanced, that, that we, can, we can exceed this idea of grace too much at the expense of truth, but we can also uh, 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 focus on truth so much that we forget about grace. But the problem is, as I thought about this, as I read more about, about this idea of grace and this word referring to having a favored status, In other words, it's a favored status that we have with God. Uh, If grace is truly grace, and another way to describe grace or to define grace is is this idea that it is God's unmerited favor toward us. God's unmerited favor. In other words, you didn't do anything to earn it. That you have favor towards God which is interesting because Genesis 6 is really the first time that we see this concept and it talks about how God is upset and he is sorry that he created the whole world and he decided that he was going to going to uh, destroy the world but it says that Noah found grace with God. It never says why, by the way. It simply says that Noah found grace with God. And, And so... The thing is that grace by its very nature think about this a second grace by its very nature is very unbalanced it's very unbalanced because the reality is as even as Christians we keep violating 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 the truth and he keeps forgiving, forgiving, forgiving our trespasses. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, the psalmist said, slow to anger and rich in love, or that that Hebrew word hased, that word hased, which refers to the love of God that continually pursues, that is continually there, that is always present, even though we don't feel it. I mean, there are there ever times, maybe it's just me, but are there ever times that you don't necessarily feel loved by God? Well, let me ask you another question. Are there ever times that you feel like maybe you shouldn't be loved by God? I think I experience that every day. And yet, God who is rich in his mercy and in his great grace by which he loved us. And, and, and so, I do see grace and truth like, like two, uh, two rails on a railroad track that stay the same uh, distance apart and they balance each other. But in reality, the grace of God really and we 're going to look at some of this next week we 're going to get into the next verse next week, okay, but anyway, uh, it, this idea of grace is very unbalanced and and to me it 's just me, but when I think about god 's grace towards me and I think about well, when I think about God's grace towards me, if I'm really going to be truthful, I'm really glad it's there and I'm very uh, I'm very blessed by it. I'm very grateful for it. But sometimes when I see God's grace toward others, I'm mystified. And I don't quite I don't quite get it. And there are times that I'm like full of grace and truth, God. Full of grace and truth. And truth, right? By the way, it's truth, God. Take care of it. sometimes I think, really, it's easier to receive God's grace upon yourself than it is to extend it towards someone else. And it's a hard thing that we do wrestle with. And then then there are those times that, that I think we really believe that we have been retained by God You know how you retain an attorney? That we've been retained by God and now we need to defend him? Isn't that ridiculous when you think about it? So that we can prosecute those who have violated the truth? How much sense does that make? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like you, right? Not me, right? I just rewrote the song if you noticed. And and so it's this idea of a favored status. And that the glory of God, this is the context here in this sentence. We saw his glory. Glory as the only unique one of the Father. But what did they see? They saw someone who was full of grace and truth. Remember last week when we looked at the story of Moses on Mount Sinai? And we talked about that that exchange between God and Moses. and, And Moses says to God, let me see your glory. and God says okay I'll I'll do that remember that then he he tucks Moses in the cleft of the rock and he actually the text says that he actually brings his hand down and he covers Moses up he covers the body of Moses with his hand and and he goes and he passes by and he declares the name of the Lord he declares the nature of the Lord he declares who he is to Moses, all the while covering up Moses with his hand as he passes by, because if he didn't cover up Moses with his hand, that Moses would have been fried instantaneously. And then eventually pulls his hand away, remember, and he allows Moses to see the afterglow of his presence. I, I looked at that, in, and in that passage between uh, Uh, Exodus 33, 12 and Exodus 34, 9. The word grace is used six times. I thought that was interesting. That the word grace would be used that many times in that short passage. Because part of the nature, part of the name, the nature of God is that God is a very gracious God. And part of the truth about him is that he is gracious. Notice it puts grace before truth. And, and really when we, we bring this into, into greater context for the law, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses and grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Because when we often think of the truth, biblical truth, we had this talk in the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes and that was an interesting discussion. But when we often think about truth, I think most of us gravitate toward the law. Is the law true? Is the law true? Is it part of God's word? Is truth? And I was listening to a guy speak recently on this. In the Gospels, and yes, I believe it's God's word. Yes, it's true. So don't think I'm going heretical on you just yet. Why was it that Jesus so often got accused of violating the Sabbath? And it was almost as if Jesus just hung out in a hammock all day on Friday... And then as the sun was going down, which is the beginning of Sabbath, he got up and started working. Why did he do that? I'll leave that for you. I think sometimes it's good to leave you with a question. It fascinates me, but of course he, well, I I can't help it. One of the things was he is Lord of the Sabbath, correct? Correct. And he declared that. But even in his truth, which is interesting because this word truth in in the Greek, it has so many different nuanced type of meanings. One of those is, is that it's a category that's beyond opinion. A category beyond opinion. You have opinions, I have opinions, we have opinions, they have opinions. Right? Just because it's an opinion does not mean it's a true one. See, with with the cults, their theology has some elements of truth in it. They also have elements of what I believe are false doctrines and that's what makes them so dangerous is the fact that you'll you'll see you'll recognize some of the truth and then maybe disregard some of the things that maybe you don't agree with but these people are so nice and they're paying my rent you know and all that kind of stuff which is what some of these groups do truth is a category that's beyond opinion and this word in the greek really has as part of this meaning, get this this is this is an interesting concept to me. It has as part of its meaning uh, this idea of non concealment something that is not concealed. I thought that was fascinating it, and so it 's really an indication of of, 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 a, of a, either a matter or a state of being. Uh, that can be seen, that can be understood, and that does not need to be hidden because it's not completely true. You ever talk to people and and they're trying to prove their point and you know that they're not quite there, you know they don't quite have the full ammo? So they, and we all do, we lead with our best foot, right? We leave with our best thinking and, and, and hope to goodness they don't consider some of the other things about something that you are trying to prove that really demonstrate that what it is that you are trying to prove is, in fact, untrue. We'll just leave out some of those details. I think that happens in the courts of law all the time, but then again, that's just my opinion and your mileage may vary. But nonetheless... Real truth is something that can be fully disclosed. It does not need to be concealed. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and and with our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not something that needs to be hidden. So he's full of grace and he's full of truth. And then it goes on, it says, John testified about him and called out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who is coming after me has proved to be my superior because he existed before me. For his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. So remember, we are still in that context, that, and that's why I went back to verse 6. We are still in that context here in this little passage of the testimony or the witness of John the Baptist. And, and John the Baptist is saying about Jesus, the word, he's superior to me. And, and, I, and, and I love this about John the Baptist because he was so willing to, to, to set himself aside for the sake of his ministry, which was to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And, 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 and later on, we'll see this in, in chapter two where John says, I must decrease, but he must increase. But he who is coming after me is superior to me because sometimes we get enamored with the voice. We get enamored with the instrument. I changed my strings, uh, strings last night. And uh, boy, they needed it. And so then I sat there in my living room and all I wanted to do was just play the guitar and not worry about what I was gonna have to say. Well, I, I used to have studied all day. But anyway, I was so enamored with those new strings and how great the guitar sound. Um, I didn't think about the maker, the manufacturer. And, and it's, we are prone to do that. We get wrapped up in the messenger. And often kind of set aside at least slightly what the message is really all about. And, and John the Baptist was insistent that they were people, the people who responded to his message to repent... He was insistent that they followed Jesus and not him. He was superior to me. And he existed before me. If you've read the gospel, the gospel of Luke, who was born first? Jesus or John? John was born first. So he's obviously talking about his preexistence. He's obviously going back to verse 1 of chapter 1 here in the book of John where the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's superior and he existed before I did. I, th- I think, I th- uh, and, I, and I understand the at times the battles that we have internally. Because I have them. But I think it goes a- really serves us well and we can go a long way when we have remembered that he is superior to us and he existed before we did. That problem that you have that you think is just so unique he's been there. He's been there. And he handled it in a more superior way. He handled it in a superior way than you have. He was there. He existed before you. He's superior to you. And so that's why I I think particularly in in these these difficult situations where we find ourselves in in a place where we don't know what to say, where we do not know what to do, Sometimes the best thing we can do is just cleave to Jesus who existed before us and who was superior to us. And remember that witness that John gave, for the law was given, excuse me, for for of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. I'm going to start there next week probably, but I also want to end there real quick. I'm almost done. For of his fullness we have received the fullness of the deity, the fullness of the creator, the fullness of the Logos, the fullness of the one who was in the beginning, who was before the beginning, who continued continuously before the beginning. He was with God. He was with some really good company. And he was continuously continuing to be. Because that verb was, as the verb to be. To be God. And that fullness of who he is, he wants to give to each one of you. Have you received the fullness of God? Do you walk in the fullness of God? Or it's like, well, I got my ticket punched to heaven. I'm doing good. Great. Thanks, God. See you next Sunday. Everything's cool. See, he will let you. He will let you live that way by his grace, by the way. but have you received his fullness? And this idea of grace upon grace, and there's different translations, and they're over there, and I'm not going to walk over and get them, but anyway, there are different translations uh, that that describe this a little bit differently, but I I like where this is translated, where it talks about grace as being heaped upon grace, where it's being heaped upon grace, where it's being heaped upon grace, and even more grace upon grace. And I don't think we fully understand how much of the grace of God that we actually receive day in and day out. But tie that back into his fullness. Of all who he is, of all who he is who I can barely comprehend, let alone explain to you, But within that context, they have seen his glory, the glory that is full of grace and the glory that is full of truth. Those two mountaintop experiences that we talked about last week, where Jesus unveiled his glory on the on the Mount of Transfiguration, and where Jesus or the Lord God revealed himself to Moses at Mount Sinai. And it is in those experiences that we read about in the scripture that we really can, I believe, cry out and say to God, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. It's been a terrible day. Show me your glory. It's been a horrible week. Show me your glory. It's going to be too hot this week. Show me your glory. Lord, I can't stand that person. Show me your glory. Lord, I can't stand me. Show me your glory. And receive that fullness that he has for each one of us each and every day.